Well, good morning or good afternoon or good evening to whoever might be listening to this message. Uh, it's being recorded on uh, Friday, I think it's March 20th. Uh, but with the hope that the saints at Calvary Bible Chapel and anyone else who wants to can listen to it and be encouraged as they listen to it. As uh, anyone who is listening to this at this time would be aware of, we are faced with the pandemic of the coronavirus. And uh, that has justifiably brought fear into uh, many hearts. Uh, if you are an elderly person uh, with um, known uh, health condition, health issues, uh, this is a very dangerous uh, virus. Or if you have a loved one in that condition, you would be concerned uh, for their lives. And uh, that's probably the group of people who, who would be most affected at this time. But uh, other people are also affected. Uh, you may have a, a source of income, like a job or a business, that is being impacted due to the stay-at-home order that's now affecting all of California. And uh, you might well be concerned for your source of income and your uh, being provided for at this time, being able to pay mortgage or rent or uh, for your food or, or medical needs. And those are all very legitimate concerns. Or you could be um, just uh, feeling constrained by not being allowed to get out of your house and do the kinds of things you like to do. My kids uh, are on soccer teams and on uh, track and field activities, and they can't uh, go and do all these activities they enjoy doing and being part of, or visit with their friends, go on play dates, uh, sleepovers, because of the stay-at-home order. So this is affecting many of us, and uh, we are all justified in feeling like we're going through a trial, or more than one trial, at this time. Now, the Bible teaches us that trials are a normal part of the Christian life. Uh, when God saved us, he didn't promise us that we will not have to experience trials. Uh, on the contrary, the Bible tells us that we will experience Trials. Now, trials come for different reasons. My family has recently started looking at the epistle of James recently, and there we're told that God uses trials to uh, work on our character and make us more like the Lord Jesus. Uh, and that's one good reason, according to James, of why we should actually count trials to be all Joy. That's one command in the Bible I've been struggling with. But uh, this, um, in our study today, we will look at another reason of why uh, God allows trials into our lives. And that reason is found in 1 Peter chapter 1. 
in verses 6 through 7, Peter tells us that in this we greatly rejoice, not in the trial, but rather in the hope of our salvation. But then he brings trials into the picture. He says, though now for a little while, and he is describing our earthly life, now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. So here's the word trials again. And uh, we're told that we as believers have been grieved by various trials. At least Peter recognizes that we're being grieved by trials. Um, and then he gives the reason for the trials. He says that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So here the reason given of trials is to reveal the genuineness of our faith. And he uses as an illustration that of gold being tested by fire uh, often, people will find uh, something in the ground that they think might be gold, and uh, a fire might show whether it's genuine gold. You can heat it up so much that all other elements will be burned or melted away, and then you will see what is it that you have that truly is gold. In a similar way, there might be many things in our lives that are not true faith, but if there is faith in our life, the trial will reveal it. And according to Peter, that is more precious than gold. And God wants to reveal it to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God is so values our faith in him so much that he wants to expose it, he wants to reveal it, he wants to move the dross away out of our lives so that our faith will shine forth in, the, in all the praise and honor and glory that God ascribes to it. Now, this is what we want to consider in the passage we will look at today. And that passage is found in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. So let's go ahead and read that. Matthew chapter 8, verse 5 through 13. Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home, paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to this one, Go, and he goes, and to another, Come, and he comes, and to my servant, Do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, 
I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. First, we want to consider a little bit of the background of this passage. Um, we have transitioned, actually last week, into a new uh, portion of the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, so I just want to kind of catch us up to where we are at and consider how this fits into the general object of the book. Some of you know that the four Gospels are each representing or emphasizing a different attribute of the, of, of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew is known to emphasize his royalty, or rather being the king of Israel, or the king of heaven, or the king of the kingdom of God. And we've seen this so far, emphasizing chapter 1 by giving his royal pedigree. Uh, this is the only gospel that really starts with uh, giving the line of descendancy of, of um, the Lord Jesus uh, through his, that comes through his father that really gives him the right of being the king of Israel. He descended from David, from Solomon, from the lines of the kings of Israel. We see that in chapter 1. And that fo is followed by his virgin birth that also is a fulfillment of a prophecy about the Messiah being born from a virgin. Then in chapter 2, we saw the wise men coming and recognizing him as king. Remember, they came and they said, where is, is he who has been born king of the Jews? And then that results in Herod, who was the king at the time, trying to assassinate Jesus, recognizing him as a threat to his throne. In chapter 3, Jesus was declared to be Israel's Messiah by John the Baptist as he baptized him and also declared to be the Son of God, as God spoke from heaven as the Holy Spirit descended on the Lord Jesus. In chapter 4, Jesus, if you would, faces the kingdom's number one enemy, Satan himself, in the temptation in the wilderness, and Jesus emerges victorious from that set of temptations. And then finally, in the chapters 5 through 7, we looked at the Sermon on the Mount, which was really Jesus as king laying down, if you would, the law of the kingdom of heaven, saying how we as the kingdom's citizen ought to be living. So all of those pointed to Jesus as king, and now in chapters 8 and 9, we will see a series of miracles that the Lord will perform, interspersed, interspersed, interspersed spaced, inters, interspersed with uh, some of his teachings. So it's not only miracles, 
but it is mostly a series of miracles. And I wanted to just spend a minute and think, how does that fit into the theme of the gospel? And first and foremost, I would say, it shows Jesus' heavenly power. As the king of heaven, he is able to bring the power of the kingdom of heaven into this world and heal all earthly maladies. All earthly maladies really are the result of mankind turning away from God and as a result being exposed to death and all the sickness and all the bad things that can happen to us, which can never happen to us in heaven. And Jesus, as the king of heaven, brings down his kingdom with him and the effects of that kingdom. And as a result, as he encounters people, he's healing them from all these diseases, really showing his power as the king of heaven. He also shows his character as the king of heaven in dealing with his subject. We saw it last week as Michael was teaching about Jesus cleansing a leper uh, from leprosy. He showed the power of being able to cleanse the leper, but also the character of the king. As the leper said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus walked up to him and touched him, showing really his compassion on the leper, touching what was considered untouchable at the time. So not just the power, but also the character of the king. Finally, in these different miracles, we will see the example of faith of those who sought his help and benefited from it. Uh, many times Jesus will, it'll say something like, Jesus looked at their faith. Or Jesus says to a person, your faith has made you well. When he goes to Nazareth later on, it will say that he did not do many miracles or many mighty works because of their unbelief. So Jesus' miracles don't just point, did not just point to himself as being the healer, but they also pointed to those he healed in as much as their faith in him was revealed. And that was important because faith in Jesus is <coughs> really the ingredient of our entering the kingdom of heaven. We need faith in the Lord Jesus, and Jesus wanted that faith to be exposed. So when Jesus was performing a miracle, there was an arrow pointing at Jesus as the Savior, but there was also an arrow pointing at the faith of those people who put their faith in the Lord Jesus and were therefore healed or received uh, his, the benefit of their faith uh, from his power. And so that's what we want to really look at today. That's what will be presented to us, not just the power of the Lord Jesus that shows him as the king of heaven, but also the faith of those who received the benefit of his power as being the faith that we also want to be exhibited in our life. Okay, so with that, let's turn to the main figure in this passage, that being the centurion. So a centurion comes to the Lord Jesus, and we will see <coughs> a faith being born. Uh, after that, we will look at a faith being called to action. Then we will see a proper faith on display. 
followed by that faith being appreciated <coughs> by the Lord Jesus, and then finally, a faith rewarded. So if you are taking notes, that would be our outline for today. A faith is born, a faith called to action, a proper faith on display, a faith appreciated, and finally, a faith rewarded. A faith is born, and that being that of the centurion. Now, we don't know really uh, how the faith of the centurion was developed. We just see that it already exists when the passage starts. So we have to use what I would call a sanctified imagination to try to think about the faith of the centurion. First of all, it's extremely likely that the centurion was raised as, an, uh, as a heathen, meaning one who did not know God. Uh, he was probably a Roman. It's possible he was not a Roman, but it's very likely that he was. The Romans uh, believed in many gods, so they were what we would call polytheists. Uh, most people are not that familiar with the Romans' gods, but you would be familiar with the Greek gods. And the Romans seems to have basically the same sets of gods that the Greeks had. They just used different names for them. And uh, they believed different gods had different powers. And so they would reach out to different gods depending on their needs. If you were going to war, you would be praying and offering sacrifices to Mars, the god of war, in order to secure victory over your enemies. Uh, if you were to go on the ocean on a voyage, you would pray to the god of the ocean to give you secure passage on the ocean. If you were sick, you would pray to the god that you believed had the power uh, to heal you. And these gods uh, very often had different human traits, uh, including sinful traits. So this was um, the set of gods that the, uh, the centurion was raised to believe in. Then at some point he came to Israel. It appears that at this time he is residing in Capernaum because that's where Jesus entered, where he meets the centurion. And it seems likely that that centurion has been dwelling there for some time because we're told in Luke chapter 7 that this centurion helped the Jews build a synagogue. And that would have taken some time. He probably didn't actually work <coughs> with his hands on the synagogue. He probably just provided financially for the construction of the synagogue. So that means he would have been there for some time. Uh, also, it suggests that he was uh, introduced to Jewish teachings about God. Or again, it's very unlikely he would be participating in the building of the synagogue. Not just that, he probably came to believe those teachings as being genuine. Again, otherwise, it's just hard to imagine he would be spending such a sum of money to be given such credit, unless he really believed that the teachings taught in that synagogue were actually true. Otherwise, he wouldn't finance them. What were the teachings that he would have heard? Well, uh, probably the, the newest teachings he would have heard 
uh, that would be contrary to what he was raised with is that there is just one God and that God created the heaven and the earth and had absolute power over his creation. He was not limited as the Roman gods to one area of nature or another. He had power over all of creation. And he created the world, the world <coughs> with the power of his word. There is a God in heaven who created the whole universe by speaking it into existence. Second, uh, he would have learned that that God has chosen the nation of Israel as his special people. You can't meet a Jew and not know that because that's what all Jews believe. It is true, though, as we will see in this passage, it is not sufficient uh, and also it is not limiting. It's not designed to limit the Gentiles coming to God. And then finally, he would have learned that God has promised to send Israel a savior or a messiah, or which is translated Christ. So probably those three teachings would have been unavoidable, <clears throat> and he must have believed those in order to be financing the building of a synagogue. So that's what I would um, place at minimum the convictions of this centurion, which he has come to, now, also very likely, because his job was to keep the peace in the land of Israel, uh, he would be well informed of what was going on. And one of the latest things that have been going on was Jesus has appeared on the scene. John the Baptist came baptizing. He pointed to Jesus as the Messiah. And after <clears throat> Jesus came to Galilee, which happened in chapter 4 of Matthew, Jesus started performing miracles. He was healing people miraculously. And it seems likely to me, based on our passage today, that the centurion connected the dots. He was taught about God. He was taught about the Messiah. Well, now a Jewish teacher has a reason who is performing incredible miracles that have never been seen in the land. And it seems very likely that the centurion in his heart, has breached the connection and realized this must be the one that the Old Testament is speaking about. And he believed in Jesus. Most likely, all of that happened before our passage begins. And what we see in the passage is that faith being revealed. Remember, that's something that is precious to God, our faith. And so Jesus, if you would, will be reaching into this centurion and pulling out that faith to make it visible. But the next point I had was a faith called to action. How was that faith called to action? Well, the servant of the centurion became sick. In our passage in Matthew, it says that he was lying at home, paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. In Luke chapter 7, we're told that he was sick and ready to die. So if you today have a loved one who, who is sick and suffering and perhaps at 
at death's door, you can sympathize with this centurion and what he must be feeling. Uh, we know that he loved this servant because we're told in, um, in Luke 7 that this, that this servant was dear to him. The servant is lying at the house of the centurion. So the centurion has been caring for him and he cares for him enough that he is reaching out to Jesus to seek healing for him. Again, we would have to uh, employ sanctified imagination to try to think, why would a servant be so dear to his master? Uh, it occurs to me that perhaps this servant has been the servant of the centurion for many years. Uh, perhaps the centurion uh, has come from Rome uh, serving in the army. They... Uh, the typical service required by the Roman army was 20 years. So this centurion could have been serving as centurion for many years, and the servant might have been traveling with him from battle to battle, uh, taking care of the centurion, perhaps uh, healing or helping the centurion during his injuries. Uh, perhaps he was caring for the centurion's children, if he had children. Uh, he probably became as a member of the family to the centurion. And so the centurion really loved this servant. And so his faith is called into action. He has come to faith in the Lord Jesus. He believes that the Lord Jesus has the power to heal his servant. And now because his servant is sick, he must do something about it. Because he believes there is a cure for... If you believed that, uh, that there was a cure for your loved one who might be uh, deathly sick, uh, you, would, you would go through any effort necessary to obtain that cure and make sure your loved one has the opportunity to receive it. And so, because the centurion believed in Jesus, and because he loved his servant who was sick and near to death, his faith compelled him to act. He had to do something about it. And so he goes to Jesus. Now, interestingly, he doesn't go directly. We're told in Luke chapter 7, I refer to that passage several times, uh, I'll go ahead and uh, read a couple of the verses now. In verse 3, it says, So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom they should do this was deserving, for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you, but say the word, and my servant will be healed. So, the centurion doesn't feel that Jesus will respond to his request. And it seems to be uh, for maybe a couple of reasons. One, 
he himself is a Gentile, right? And he may have reason to believe, well, I'm not one of the chosen people. There's no particular reason the uh, Messiah or the Savior of the chosen people will respond to me. And so I have these Jewish friends. They're the elders. They're the leaders of the local synagogue. uh, And uh, they're my friends. And uh, they owe me one because I helped build a synagogue. So I'll ask them to go. And surely Jesus will respond to them. So they go to Jesus. And indeed, Jesus does respond to them and, and comes to, to heal the servant. Uh, but the centurion is like, whoa, 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 this is not really what I wanted. I, I, I don't, I'm not worthy that Jesus should come under my roof, and we'll talk about that in a second. So he sends his friends, so these must have been people who were with him in his house, perhaps uh, uh, trying to encourage him in his situation with his servant being so sick. And he says, just tell Jesus he doesn't have to come all the way to my house. Just, just speak a word. Tell him all he has to do is say it, and my servant will be healed. Now, it seems from our passage today that Jesus wasn't satisfied with that and he keeps on coming after the friends show up and tell Jesus that he doesn't have to come to the house, just speak a word, until the centurion himself has to come out of his house and say, wait, wait, I don't need you to come to my house. I just want you to say a word. I'm not worthy for you to step under my roof. And so, what we have in this passage, I will say, is a proper faith on display. A proper faith on display. Jesus was not generally respected during his ministry. We're told in Isaiah 53, 2 and 3, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. This is a prophecy made by Isaiah 700 years before the coming of Christ, but it describes Christ well. There was no beauty in him that we should desire him. He didn't dress to impress. He lived uh, almost like a homeless person. He says at some point that foxes, have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He slept by the side of the road as often as not um, and wasn't wearing (coughs) clothes that (coughs) suggested him to be anyone special. They were probably the clothes of a carpenter. And uh, he didn't behave, he didn't seek the glory of men as other uh, rulers have. So people were just not impressed. They would take a look at Jesus and say, this can't possibly be the Messiah. There's nothing about him 
that impressed people, and because of that, they despised him. Uh, after his death, it wasn't much better. Paul says in the letter to the Corinthians that he preached Christ crucified. To the Jews, it was a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, it was foolishness. After Jesus was crucified, the Jews even more felt, well, this couldn't possibly be the Messiah. Right? The Messiah came to reign. He came to defeat his enemies and the enemies of the nation. And, uh, you know, he was killed by the Romans. There's no way this guy is the Messiah. The Greeks similarly felt that it was a foolish thing to preach that someone through crucifixion could benefit anybody else. And so Jesus was not esteemed after his death and resurrection. And today, Jesus is not esteemed. People uh, are as likely to use the name of Jesus as a curse word or take his name in vain as they do to refer to him uh, out of a measure of respect. And so this man's faith in Jesus stands out when he thinks of Jesus as being so great as not to, uh, so, such that his house was not worthy to be visited by Jesus. The centurion may very well have had the nicest house in Capernaum. I imagine if uh, for some reason uh, the governor of the land had to come to that particular part of the country, you know, he might have to stay at the centurion's house. Right? if that was the nicest house in the area. But it wasn't worthy to have the Lord Jesus come into. I imagine that the centurion viewed Jesus much through the words of Psalm 2, describing Jesus again prophetically. There, Jesus is speaking, in a sense, uh, through the prophet saying, I will declare the decree. This is Psalm 2, verse 7. The Lord has said to me, that is, the Lord said, God said to Jesus, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. This is who the Lord Jesus was. These are the eyes through which the centurion saw the Lord Jesus. He is the Son of God, the only begotten Son of God. He owns the nation. The earth is his possession. How would you feel if the President of the United States happen to knock at your door and say, I want to, you know, come in for a meal or a cup of tea, perhaps you would feel that you are not worthy of such a visit. How much more the person who owns the entire world come into your house and say, can I come in? Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. This speaks uh, to the Lord Jesus' response to the rebellion of the world. The world 
is in rebellion against Christ, and one day there will be a great war of the world against Jesus. And at that time, it says, describes Jesus as breaking them with a rod of iron and dashing them to pieces like a potter's vessel. How would you feel if the man who, by his own power, defeats all the nations of the world single-handedly wants to come into your house? <clears throat> now, therefore, be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. There is no reason to dread the Lord Jesus because we can serve him with due respect that's what fear means in this passage. And we can rejoice with trembling, all the while recognizing his great power. We can rejoice in his presence at his blessings. Kiss the sun, that is uh, a picture of paying homage to him. And uh, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. There's no reason if we trust in the Lord Jesus to fear him because we have his blessings upon us instead of judgment. All the same, the, the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. And so it was a proper faith that the centurion exhibited in the Lord Jesus. In fact, uh, you cannot find a better example of proper faith in the Lord Jesus in the Gospels that I'm aware of. And that's why it says that Jesus marveled at it. It's like a breath of fresh air. All of a sudden, in this wilderness of some people who completely outright reject him, some people who ignore him, some people who have faith in him, but not perfect faith, not seeing him truly for who he was, here is a man who does, who seems to really appreciate Jesus for who he is. The other part of the uh, faith here, the faith that's on display that is especially proper, is this person, the centurion, recognizing that Jesus does not have to come into his house in order to heal his servant. And again, this is unique. I am not aware of another case in the Gospels where a person tells Jesus that he doesn't have to come to his house to heal, to heal his son. Now, Jesus has healed other people at a distance in the Gospel, at least one that comes to mind. Um, is in the Gospel of John. But the person asking for the healing didn't have that faith. Jesus was testing the faith of that person and telling him that Jesus himself did not need to go before that person believes, as opposed to this person who actually, on his own, realizes that Jesus did not have to come into his house. And this is consistent, again, with the teaching of the Bible. In the, the book of Hebrews, or the epistle written to the Hebrews, Jesus is described as follows in verse 3, Hebrews 1, 3, 
who being the brightness of his glory, meaning Jesus is the brightness of the glory, and the express image of his person, and that being God, Jesus is the brightness of God's glory, he is the express image of God's person, and, this is the main point, upholding all things by the word of his power. Upholding all things. What does that mean? It means this uh, thing that my notes are standing on, the podium, that's being held together by the word of Jesus. Uh, the uh, floor I'm standing on is being held together by the word of Jesus. Uh, this uh, speck of dust in the universe called the planet Earth is held together by the word of Jesus. You and I, our atoms, are being held together by the word of Jesus. And as the centurion was taught, this world was created by the power of the word of Jesus. And so, certainly Jesus doesn't have to go into somebody's house to heal anybody from any sickness. He could just speak the word, the same word that's holding the universe together can heal the centurion's servant. And the centurion recognized that. Okay. Next, we see a faith appreciated. It says, when Jesus heard it, he marveled. Now, very often we will use the word marvel as surprise. Right? I'm surprised that something happens. I'm, I marvel at it. But that's not what this word means in this passage. It means more like the word admire, to admire something. And uh, an example I can think of is when I go to Yosemite and I stand in the valley and I look at the towering uh, hills, mountains, cliffs above me. Uh, I marvel at them. I'm not surprised because I've been there before. But their majesty uh, takes my breath away every time. I marvel at it. In a similar way, Jesus marveling at the centurion's faith wasn't that he was surprised by the centurion's faith. He was just admiring it. He was appreciating it. Here was the proper faith. Here was the breath of fresh air that the Lord was missing, perhaps uh, all these years, months, weeks, days of his ministry. He got to see, to experience in person that faith that saw him as who he truly was and believed in his power, that he could do what he could truly do. He marveled at it. He admired it. He rejoiced in it. Then he comments about it. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, and it says, he said to those who followed, so it wasn't directed just to the centurion, was addressed to his disciples. 
and perhaps others who were following, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, it's likely that there is a measure of rebuke in Jesus' words. It's a rebuke to the nation of Israel. They were indeed the chosen people, and he has indeed come as their Messiah. And yet in all of Israel, he could not find such great faith, or could we say proper faith in his person, who he was and what he was able to do. Then he... Uh, points out that the Gentiles will not be denied uh, entrance into the kingdom of heaven against probably what most Jews thought. Most Jews thought that the kingdom of heaven was just for them and the Gentiles would be on the outside. But Jesus says many will come from east and west. And the idea is outside of the land of Israel, many are going to come and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. They will enjoy the kingdom of heaven. I will not keep anyone who has faith in me as this Gentile centurion has from the blessings of the kingdom of heaven. They're all going to be welcome. And this may well be a foreshadowing of the future, where we see now that people from all over the world are entering the kingdom of heaven. And... It is a warning to the Jews because he says the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The Jews were not guaranteed entry into the kingdom of heaven and they would, would be kept out if they continued in their unbelief. If they continued to disbelieve in who Jesus was and what he could do, they would be denied entry into the kingdom of heaven, which is sadly uh, the case today. Those many Jews who reject Jesus as the Messiah, they will not enter the kingdom of heaven because they're Jews, because their unbelief will keep them out. Finally, we see a faith Rewarded. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. How is the centurion rewarded? Well, first and foremost, uh, his servant was healed. He came to Jesus because one who was dear to him was paralyzed, tormented, sick, and near to death. And when he will return home, his servant will be 100% better. So that is the first reward he has. But he had other rewards. He got to hear his faith being praised, his faith being uh, marveled at, his faith being admired by the Lord Jesus. And I think that... Uh, that was a great reward. Uh, I have children, and they are in the stage of where their tests get
get graded, and they can get an A or a B or a C or a D or an F. And uh, when you get an A, then you're happy. And this was an A plus that the centurion got. He trusted in Jesus. He believed who Jesus was and what he could do. And Jesus marveled at his faith. He gave him an A plus. Third, the centurion who felt he did not deserve to have Jesus enter his house was assured that he had a place in Jesus' house. <clears throat> he would be welcomed to the kingdom of heaven. He was one of those who came from east or west, and because of his faith in the Lord Jesus, he found a home in the kingdom of heaven. What about us today? Uh, we may not be in exactly the same situation of the centurion, but we have trials in our lives. Probably many of you, as I mentioned, your trials could be related to the coronavirus, whether it's a fear of death, fear of a loved one dying, a financial impact, or simply not being able to go out and do those things that you like to do. How can uh, we apply this to ourselves? Well, we can also look at the Lord Jesus in faith in the midst of our trial. Whether it is, <clears throat> again, because of fear for our own health, we can look to the Lord Jesus in faith. We can come to him and ask him for what it is that burdens our heart. Uh, he is on his throne in heaven, but his ears are available to hear everything that you say. And so you can come to him today the same way that the centurion came to him. What are our benefits for doing that? Uh, first of all, uh, whatever we bring to the Lord, uh, he hears us. He hears what we ask for. And as Ephesians 3.20 reminds us, he is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. We don't know for sure that the Lord Jesus will spare our lives or spare the lives of our loved ones or give us our jobs back or... Uh, do whatever it is that we ask him to, but we must know that he is able to do all these things and uh, that he will work all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so we could trust him <clears throat> to bring forth the best in this situation and, and pray uh, to that account. Second, uh, we can be assured that Jesus has a place for us too in heaven, not just for the centurion. John 14, 1 and 2, Jesus reminds us, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, 
I go to prepare a place for you. Jesus uh, went to heaven for the purpose of preparing a place for everyone who believes in him. So if you believe in the Lord Jesus, you can be assured he has a place for you uh, prepared or is preparing a place for you. And that's a comfort if my life is in danger, I know he has a place for me. Uh, if, uh, if in this world we're suffering loss of income or uh, other uh, discomforts, we know he has a place for us. And in this world, as James reminds us, this is just a little while. Whatever we have here is a little while. And what he has for us there is for all of eternity. Finally, uh, we can be assured that Jesus is looking at our faith and rejoices in it, marvels at it to the extent that our faith is that proper faith. As James reminds us, in this you greatly rejoice, that is, the hope of heaven that he's given us, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, the genuineness of your faith, that is what the Lord is interested in as you're going through this trial and as you bring your needs before him, as you're trusting in him through this trial, the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold. Your faith is precious to God as you're trusting in him in the midst of this situation. Though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus will not live your faith hidden. You might say, well, nobody sees my faith. <laughs> the centurion got an A+. Plus. Uh, Jesus pointed people to his faith. Jesus' desire is to reveal your faith just as much as he revealed the centurion's faith. He is not going to let it remain hidden. Whether he reveals it on earth or whether he reveals it in heaven, uh, he has a greater interest in the genuineness of your faith being revealed than you have. And he will bring it to pass and uh, you will be rewarded for it. So whatever trial you're going through, don't give up, but hold on to the Lord Jesus. Bring it before the Lord Jesus. Trust it to the Lord Jesus. So Jesus will have that glorious opportunity to reveal that faith in your life, to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you care so much about us. You cared about the centurion as uh, he was putting his faith in your son, the Lord Jesus, and you wanted to bring that, that faith to light so that your son could be glorified in it. 
and even allowing trials to come into the centurion's life so that faith could be genuinely revealed. Uh, we pray, I pray, Lord, for all the saints. Uh, we are all going through trials. Trials are a normal part of our Christian life. And yet perhaps there is uh, one or more saints uh, going through deep waters right now, uh, perhaps especially because of the effects of the corona. Virus. Lord, we lift them up to you. We ask that you strengthen them in their faith in you, that you could be glorified in their faith as well. And meet all our needs today, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.